There's half a world of travel thrills south of the equator. I'm Rick Steves, and coming up, we're getting the scoop on a magical mountain shrine and a tropical island paradise. Adventure traveler Kurt Kutai joins us in a moment as we explore the highs and lows of Peru. Most people, when they're traveling to South America, they want to see the Inca ruins. Peru has one of the best infrastructures for getting around in the Andes and the Amazon. Coming up, we'll find out about the deeply spiritual appeal of Machu Picchu, with options for getting there the hard way or in air-conditioned comfort. And later in the hour, travel writer David Stanley fills us in on Fiji, a South Pacific nation ready to greet its visitors with a hearty call of Bula. There's so much to do in Fiji, so many different choices of places to go. David Stanley writes the definitive guidebook on the South Pacific. He's back to help us focus on Fiji a little later this hour. We start with a peek at Peru, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Welcome. Today, we're learning about two Southern Hemisphere destinations that couldn't be more different or more appealing. In just a moment, we'll hear about Peru and its impressive Incan ruins at Machu Picchu. And later in the hour, we focus on Fiji in the South Pacific. You can join in with your questions or tell us about your experiences in Fiji or Peru. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. And by phone, it's 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Let's go south. We're going to Peru, Andes, Amazon, and the land of the Incas. I've got with me a man who for 20 years has been uh, organizing and leading groups through Latin America. He runs a company called Wildland Adventures, and he's joining us in our studio to talk about Peru. Kurt Kute, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Nice to to have you here. It's a pleasure. You know, for me, I'm like uh, a lot of Norte Americanos. I don't even know what would distinguish Peru from... Chile, Bolivia, uh, Paraguay, all these other Latin American countries. From a tourism point of view, in a nutshell, how would you distinguish Peru from its neighbors? Well, Peru has Machu Picchu, which is really the core that most people think of when they're traveling to South America. They want to see the Inca ruins. And uh, it has, as a result, the, probably the, one of the best infrastructures for getting around in the Andes and the Amazon. Of course, all those Latin American countries on the western part of the continent have Andes and Amazon as a part of the geography, but Peru really uh, is is very well organized. So that's interesting. Probably the lion's share of the uh, rich world tourism to Peru, the developed world, would be to see Machu Picchu. It is, true. And, and because right. of that, you've got a lot of a boost for the tourism infrastructure, uh, better hotels, better tour companies, better communication, better More roads. accessibility, especially in that part of the world. It's pretty tough. Therefore, the attractions that everybody has, the Amazon and the uh, rainforest and the... Um, the jungle in the Andes, that is easier to do in conjunction with a Machu Picchu trip because they've got the economic strength into the tourism. That's right. Is that what you're saying? Most people go to Peru, go to see Machu Picchu, and then if they want to add on Galapagos in Ecuador or go see the Iguazu Falls Hmm. in Argentina, you know, you can do that. Or they might go to Galapagos and then just add on a a side trip to Machu Picchu. Tell me about the ethnicity here. You've got all these different countries. How are Peruvians different from uh, Bolivians or Paraguayans? Well, in Peru, there's uh, uh, 60% of the population is uh, indigenous Quechua natives and otherwise mixed mestizo, uh, European. Uh, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru are the more indigenous uh, nations of South America. Ecuador, um, Bolivia, Peru, well, that might be a good reason for some people to want to see those countries. Absolutely. And that's one big difference between Peru and Ecuador is you, when you travel through Ecuador, you see a lot of different ethnic groups of indigenous people, whereas in Peru... It is generally more homogeneous Quechua native population. Cusco was the capital of the Incas, and it's still the tourism capital today. Okay, so if you had one week in Peru and you want to see Machu Picchu, but you want to get a little variety too, let's say uh, eight or ten days, you're going to fly down there and back. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, give me a little more than a week. Okay, ten days. I'll give you <laughs> yeah. ten days. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, so you fly into Lima. You usually have to overnight in Lima and then right up to Cusco. Then down through the Urubamba Valley. Hopefully you have a chance to spend a night there on to Machu Picchu. We recommend you at least spend one night there. Most tourists just go in for the day on the train and come back. And then that gives you enough time to go down into the Amazon for a couple more days. So you've combined the Andes, the Amazon, and the coast. 
we don't ever recommend going to Machu Picchu for the day. That's really what conventional right. tourists do. So we spend the night, at least one night in Machu Picchu. The other way to see Machu Picchu, of course, is to hike on the, on the Inca wow. Trail, the sacred pilgrimage uh, to the ancient city. So let's talk about Machu Picchu. I would think being there overnight, you're there under the stars. I mean, that must be just great. You wake up early before any of the other, the most obnoxious groups are probably the ones that come in in the middle of the day. Right. It's like anywhere in the world. If it's yeah. a tourist trap, spend the night. Mm-hmm. In so exactly. many cases. I right. mean, it's amazing. You can be at some of these places that are just mobs and zoos in the middle of the day, and at night they're magic. Same thing with Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. It's all about timing. Are there humble hotels up there, fancy hotels, uh, big well, condos with views? What do you Yeah, the Orient Express owns the Machu Picchu Sanctuary Hotel, which is the hotel up on, right next to the ruins on the top of the mountain. Uh, all the other accommodations are down below in a little town called Aguas Calientes. How far below? It's just, it's about a 15-minute bus ride on a hairpin road that goes up the side of the mountain. Does the government preserve the majesty of Machu Picchu very well? They do fairly well. They, mm-hmm. they do. There's talk about putting a tram in, for better or for worse, you know, instead of the bus. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. There's been a lot of talk like that. Now, this is a sacred site to indigenous people, isn't it? It is. Still today. Uh, I don't I know that the sacred people use it. I think it's just become a program of tourism because uh, they do use other Inca uh, sites, though, for their own rituals. Really? Now, does that matter to a tourist that this is a sacred site or was a sacred site? Yes, it does. And if you go in with a consciousness about that, and pay attention to the environment that you're in. First of all, it's spectacularly beautiful. Visually, it's just stunning, and you're overwhelmed by that. But if you let it then sort of sink in, this is, as I said, that hiking on the trail was a sacred pilgrimage. They had they have a series of fountains that are still there that the Incas used to wash and cleanse yourself externally, but also you know symbolically internally. So this area carries a lot of uh, a lot of, of now, magic to now it. Now this is pre-Columbian, so it's it's before the time of Columbus. But uh, how old is it? I think it was built around uh, just 1300. Yeah. So it's it's not like before Christ time or anything like that. No. The Incan civilization. When when were the what was the the peak of that civilization? Right up until the Spanish arrived in 1500s. Okay, and then you've got your opportunity to enjoy the Amazon and the rainforest. Tell me about the the rainforest and how that mixes it up with the Andes. Well, first of all, you know, of course, when you're traveling anywhere, it's great to you know have a variety of emphasizing nature and culture. You know, diversity is kind of the key, and so you can go to different geographical regions. In the Amazon, you know, you're up at, up at 11,000, 12,000 feet in the Andes. You descend completely down the eastern slopes of the Andes into the Amazon, and you're down at 1,000 to, you know, 300-foot uh, elevation. It's a it sharp drops. descent. Yeah, and there's two different ways you can go. You can fly down to right. the Amazon, or you can take this road trip. Tell me about it. It's incredible. It's my favorite, one of my favorite trips in the in the world is to the Manu Wildlife Center. You leave Cusco, which is 11,000 feet. The first day, you drive over a pass 12,000 feet and spend a night in the cloud forest, and that's 11 hours just to get over the high Andes down into the top of the mountains to the cloud forest. 11-hour bus trip. Wow, different world then. Spend a night there, see this incredible bird spectacle, and then you continue driving another four hours, get to a river, get in a boat, three hours in a boat, stay in another lodge, then the next day is another eight hours down the Madre de Dios River just to get to the Manu Wildlife Center. Oh, you're cruising down the river. Cruising the river. We, every year we have people who see jaguar. Is this a rainforest? Yes. It's one of the most biologically diverse rainforests A lot of diversity, on Earth. I would imagine. Yeah. And the reason, because it's so close to the Andes. And one thing, we steer people away from Iquitos, which is the, this, the tourist hub of the Amazon of Peru, not to be confused with Quito, Ecuador, which is the capital of Ecuador. But Iquitos, when you look on a map, is far away from the Andes. So it's, the, it's what, you'd ex- what most people think of in the, in the negative sense of the Amazon. It's low, it's hot, there's more mosquitoes there, and it's on the mainstream of the Amazon River. Wow, it sounds exciting. We've got some callers that have uh, traveled, I think, in Peru and want to do a little sharing. David in Athens, Georgia, hi. Hey, how you doing, Rick? Great. Have you been to uh, Peru? Yeah, I sure have. It's a pretty spectacular place. What was the highlight for you? Why did you like it? Wow. Uh, well, first of all, I'm going to say real quick, I did a... I did a kind of a big trip. I went down, spent a week in Ecuador, doing like a medical mission. Then we spent a week in the Galapagos and finished in Peru. And we went to Cusco, hiked the Inca Trail, uh, to Machu Picchu, and then uh, stayed another day in Cusco and then left. It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty beautiful and amazing place. Now you you about, actually hiked the Inca Trail. Yes, it's, uh, it's very... I mean, for somebody that hasn't done a lot of hiking, like we saw some people, it can be challenging, but I think it's kind of one of those experiences that everybody needs to to put on their list of things that they would absolutely have to do. It was pretty spectacular. So you kind of earn Machu Picchu, is that right? 
Yeah, it's it's definitely doable, but it's not easy. It's at a, it's between eight and twelve thousand feet. One regret is I wish uh, <clears throat> I wish we would have had more time to spend in Cusco, partly to acclimate to the uh, elevation, but also Cusco is a absolutely fantastic city, and we didn't realize that till we got there. We we thought of it as just a launching point for the hike, but Cusco is fantastic. Did you spend the night up at Machu Picchu? Uh, we did not, and, and I was listening. Uh, that's something I'd like to, to do in the future. I didn't. Uh, we didn't really think about staying up there. We, we, we on the trail the third night. You stay at a campsite just prior to Machu Picchu. Then you hike in that last morning, and you spend the whole day there, and then you leave. And uh, I'd love to go back and spend a night there. That'd be fantastic. So you spent three days hiking in. Yeah, it's about um, three and a half days. You can only you can't do the hike on your own. You have to do it through a, a group, and that's really the only way you'd want to do it anyhow. So the government but, organizes that. Uh-huh. You, Why? You can, for your safety? Uh, part of it's the protection of there are se- several different sites along the uh, along the trail itself. There are a lot of archaeological sites and to protect them. And the the trail is pretty busy right now. There's so many people that so it kind of limit uh, the number of people. They, it's right. all kind of organized. Yeah, it's the most popular hiking trail in South America. 500 people. There's permits for 500 people a day. So it has to be very well managed to work. Wow. I'm glad they limit it. Do they actually limit how many people can go to Machu Picchu also, or can any number of tour buses go? Any there? number of people can go to Machu Picchu. Wow. Now, what about the altitude, Kurt? You take groups there. Have you had trouble with people adjusting to the altitude? Yeah, we do. I mean, for I, my my case is pretty typical. I'm pretty susceptible to it. You know, I get into Cusco. Uh, take it easy. I take a couple of time. I get a headache at night. I take a couple of Tylenol. I wake up. I'm usually okay. The, you know, some people might feel nauseous and it might linger into the next day. Um, but it's usually not worse than that. But if you're going to hike the Inca Trail, it can be. We've had people turn back because they, wow. they didn't give themselves enough time. David, how did you handle the altitude? Well, <laughs> I have an interesting story. Um, the we came from the Galapagos, so we unfortunately didn't have really a lot of time to acclimate to the elevation. Um, I was in the Navy, so I've, you know, used a little bit of like physical activity. But uh, it was a little challenging the first couple of days. I unfortunately, on the third day, I guess, drank some water that was told was boiled and wasn't. So I, yeah. I, I got pretty sick. Wow. And you, you know, you you either gonna, you're either going to hike back out the beginning of the trail or you're going to hike to the end. There's no way for them to come and get you. So you want to make sure you're you're ready. Boy, that's you're serious. <laughs> you're, you're you're committed. Don't the natives yeah. uh, don't the natives chew a little cocoa leaf there to handle that altitude? They do, and something that they don't, something that I learned that uh, they don't tell you is, you know, all if you just drink a Coke, uh, you're getting the same thing from the coca leaves. It's just, uh, you know. Yeah, but a Coke, uh, a Coke is legal, and coca is well, co- coca leaves are legal also, aren't they? Yeah. So, but do people actually chew coca leaves for medicinal purposes? They do, and it's really it's worth spending some time on the in the Urdobamba Valley where local people live and where farmers are. You know, they we walked out on a field one day and we got there when lunch was being served by a woman who was you know, and she came out and before any food was eaten, she poured some chicha beer to, to Pachamama, Mother Earth, and then after lunch, the, all the all the workers pulled out their coca leaves and they held them up to the mountains and blew you know to the Apu spirits, and so these are all. Just routine aspects of life that you understand the relationship of the people to the earth and the heavens. It's very interesting. I'm talking with Kurt Kutai. He, he's run for 20 years a, a nature and culture tour company specializing in Latin America and Africa called Wildland Adventures. David, thank you for your call. Thank you. You did great yeah. work. Thank you. More of your calls and emails about Peru coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we're exploring Fiji in the South Pacific. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
انا اسمي كولن كلمنت انا اصلا من ادنبرا في اسكتلندا بس انا عايش في اسكندريه في مصر من 15 سنه وانا مسافر من ريك ستيفز and that was Egyptian Arabic for my name is Colin Clement I'm originally from Edinburgh, Scotland but I live in Alexandria, Egypt and I travel with Rick Steves and I'm Colin Clement and I'm from Edinburgh, Scotland but I live in Scandraia from 15 years and I'm with Rick Steves Hey, bonito! I'm Rick Steves. Our guest today, Kurt Kutai, who runs an adventure travel firm that includes itineraries in Peru. We're taking your calls and emails to learn more about Peru from the Andes to the Amazon. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Craig in Wisconsin, are you there? Yes. Thanks for your call. Have you been to Machu Picchu? Uh, no, have not been there, but uh, we would really love to, to find a way to do that. We've been doing a lot of reading about about Machu Picchu and uh, just reading about the different kinds of uh, uh, tour organizations that kind of can provide tours there, and just wondered if you could shed light on are there certain things to look for in these different companies that are providing tours to Machu Picchu? Are there some things to avoid um, Yeah, you know, um, you can go with a, a European or North American company that's been doing it for a long time, and, and I think you'll find that the itineraries are well-paced, and uh, they have good relationships with uh, ex- excellent guides, which is really important. You know, in the Andes, you want a guide who's really well-versed in history and culture, archaeology, and in the Amazon, you want other specialists who are really skilled with uh, tropical ecology and Um, and in, you can do you can organize in Peru, but the, the danger there is you get uh, more budget-oriented operations that just don't have good equipment, perhaps. Or, for example, the last caller uh, he did a very short trip on the Inca Trail, and they and they stayed at a place in just a few hours away from Machu Picchu the last night. Well, that's the same place that other people can hike in for the day, and there's there's, there's you know beer and you know they serve food. It's kind of crowded. It really takes away from the spirit of the place, and you stay in a place like that. But the, the less expensive operators in Peru, they like to go there because then all the guides can you know, party too. So, you know, you want to try to find an itinerary that's a little more uh, lengthy and, and uh, sort of avoid some of those pitfalls, if you can tell, before you go. Well, I would think if you go all the way down there, you want to give it a few extra days. Yes. Yeah, we were thinking of more of this as not only just an adventure, but kind of a, a spiritual adventure as well. Well, one one other quick tip I'll give you, too. At Machu Picchu, which is, you know, a core exp- part of the experience, is we stay at another hotel that's not the one expensive, you know, three $400 a night up on the top of the ruins, uh, the Orn Express I mentioned before. There's another one, the... Um, Pueblo Hotel in the town of Aguas Calientes. It's a really nice place, and it's down, you know, Machu Picchu is about 8,000 feet elevation, and this is down at about 5,000 feet at the base of the mountains. It's really tropical, and it's a very nice place. And there's even other places you can stay that are more, much more budget-oriented. Hey, Craig, you're, you say you're interested in a spiritual experience. I've got to say, I read The Celestine Prophecy, and it's all about this spirituality and so on, and, and kind of a strange way, but it's an engrossing book. Uh, okay. What's your experience, Kurt, with Celestine Prophecy in Machu Picchu? Oh, well... Are a lot know, of people w- into that? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Millennium, uh, the, and people you know, flock to Machu, uh, Machu Picchu because it is truly, as I said, it's a high-energy place. I mean, uh, I'm not so much into Celestine Prophecy, but you can feel the energy of this place if you pay attention to it. So, Craig, what are your expectations in seeing this trip to Peru as a spiritual journey? Oh, just uh, finding the opportunity to take the time to be sure we didn't just rush in, experience something, and, and leave quickly, and yeah. now not have not have spent the time that one should spend to to kind of uh, get a, a sense of the full experience. And uh, I, I think we just kind of look at this as a time of uh, oh, even meditation and just just thinking about the place we're in and the thing, the history of the place, the culture of the place. Um, not so much the quick tour. I've seen it. Now let's move on to the next right. thing. Now, Kurt, um, excuse me, Kurt, you've been taking people there for de- two decades. Uh, is it fr- And I know you've got a spiritual, uh, an appreciation for the spirituality of the place. Is it frustrating for you as a tour guide to take people in that just want to take a snapshot and go? How do you prepare people? How do you advise people to really um, get into the whole experience from a, uh, a spiritual point of view? Well, we, we share with them the, some of the history of, of the Incas and how they used the trail, that it was a sacred pilgrimage route, and why the water fountains are there, what the significance of them is. 
And also we, we talked to them before they go about the fact that we're going to take some time during the course of our trip to mix it up with local people, walk out to the fields, get to know how people live. Because really the Quechua, modern-day Quechua Indians are uh, recent descendants of the Incas and still practice many of the same you know, aspects of spirituality that the Incas did. Craig, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Thank Best you. wishes. Kurt, very quickly, some practicalities here. What about red tape for visiting Peru, visas and so on? Hardly any. No no advanced visas necessary for you Peru. just fly in. No yeah. problem. Um, health concerns, mosquitoes, malaria, snakes. Oh, I love to address that because people are really afraid about all that. But really, you know, if you go to this particular area of the Amazon, which is just outside of Cusco in southeast Peru, near the Andes, it's not as hot. There's fewer mosquitoes. It's, there's very little incidence of malaria, so the risk is much lower, although the CDC will say take malaria prophylaxis. Okay. Cost is it once you get there, you got to fly there. Uh, what do you what do you spend to get from the United States? Eight hundred dollars if you get a good fare. Eight hundred bucks, and then your daily cost if you're on your own and reasonable budget. Anywhere between a hundred to two hundred dollars a day. Low on budget, hundred on, on your own. You know, hundred to hundred fifty. Okay, you take a tour like one of yours. What about two hundred dollars? Two hundred bucks a day. So you pay twenty five percent more, but you probably can rationalize that by getting a more meaningful experience, and somebody else makes sure all the ducks are in a row. Especially the guiding. Language barrier. Spanish. Uh, and we love to give out Quechua phrase books, and they're available from Lonely Planet. And it's, you know, the, the native people, if you, if you say a couple words of Quechua, oh, they love it. I bet. Safety concerns. You hear uh, terrible things. It's not as sometimes. bad as it used to be, actually. You know, there's places mm-hmm. in Lima you want to avoid. But I would not discourage people from going to Lima and seeing these world-class museums. But pickpockets is all it is, really. So basically, you're going to a country where you've got more money in your pocket than most people are going to earn in a year. And, that's so, and a nicer watch. And, and a nicer watch. So just use common sense there. Best guidebooks for people who are going independently to Peru? I think Lonely Planet. Generally in the developing world, Lonely Planet is the uh, the winner. And uh, season, what's the best time to go to Peru? My favorite time is our spring, April, May, mm-hmm. uh, then, the, then September, October. But within that span, our summer months is also the core tourist season for, uh, for travel in Peru. It's the dry season. We have Catherine on the line in San Leandro, California. Hi, Catherine. Hello. How are you? Great. How are, uh, you got some ideas about Peru? Yes, when and I was there back in 1999, but I did stay at the government hotel that was at the top of the ruins. The advantage to that is that you can get up early in the morning, and most of the time the guards, right when the sun's coming up, will let you go into the ruins early. And then you can go up and you can walk the other peak, hike up to the top, which is Wanapichu, and you literally have almost the whole place to yourself, and it's gorgeous, and it's so peaceful. Wow, that sounds wonderful. Kurt? Yeah, yeah I understand. There's sometimes uh, some restrictions on letting you in. Some people are able to get in. And uh, the other thing, and that's true, you get a little ahead of the game, but if you stay down below at Aguas Calientes, you can actually catch the first the employee bus up early in the morning. Uh-huh. It's not quite there before dawn, but it's uh, a short step after she would have been there. Wanapichu, Machu Picchu. What do those words mean? Well, Wanapichu is, I think it, it's like Father Peak or something, I believe. And it's another peak that's right above, uh, that overlooks the, the, the ancient city. And Machu Picchu? And Machu Picchu, you know, I don't recall it. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> Got me on question. that one, yeah. Thanks, Catherine, for your call. Thank you. Yeah. Matt in Chicago, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I appreciate all your guidebook and your show as well. And, Kurt, I appreciate your time. Thanks. My, uh, my wife and I were thinking about taking a trip down to, to Peru and Chile and probably spending about a week in Peru. And we we're kind of curious what the best week-long itinerary would be other than just Machu Picchu to, to experience not only the culture but some of the people and uh, and also, you know, be concerned about safety and make sure that we you know, get the best itinerary and bang for our buck. Do you have any advice? Do you want to go to the Amazon jungle or not necessarily? Not necessarily, but we'd surely be up to it, but it's, it's exciting. Okay, well, I would say, you know, the best place to really kind of get to know local people is in the Urubamba Valley. It's really accessible. You know, you go to Cusco, and then from there it's just an hour down in the Urubamba. Spend a night or two or, you know, there perhaps if, you know, you want to get to know people more. There's lots to do there, hikes and crafts and so forth. Um, and then your choice will after that will be either to fly from Cusco down into the Amazon, and you can do that, you know, no less than two nights. Okay. Um, or you could consider the possibility of even going down the Altiplano to Lake Titicaca to La Paz, Bolivia, if things uh, remain stable there, and then fly from La Paz over to Chile. Sure. Thanks for your call, Matt. Thank you. Hope that, I hope that gives you some ideas. I'm talking with Kurt Kutai, and he runs a company called Wildland Adventures. Kurt, lately there's been a whole rash of um, leftist and socialist leaders uh, being elected in South America. What's the latest politically in Peru? 
Peru is still uh, a staple. No, I don't, I don't think the whole place is going to go communist and so on, but it is quite a, an, an astounding thing. What do you make of this uh, from Latin America and Central America where there's this movement to the left? I mean, you could look at it from the standpoint that at least it's releasing a little bit of pressure that's been building over the time of, uh, of this disparity of wealth in, the, in these countries. And part of globalization is this idea that uh, trickle-down, basically, and you have a wealthy class and it's good for everybody, and there's an indigenous uh, reaction against that? Yes, there's a, and there's a huge indigenous population. So know. we're going to see democracy in, in Latin America, and that means indigenous people voting That's generally more socialist, more left. That's what's happening. We've got Leah on the line in Buffalo. Hello, Leah. Hi, thanks very much for including me. Yeah, thanks for your call. How's your experience been in Peru? Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, I just had a couple of weeks before I started a new job, and I found a great airfare, so I decided to hop on down there and it just turned out to be the biggest adventure. Um, the very first night that I got there, Lan Peru, the airline, had actually uh, been deregulated by the government and was no longer allowed to fly. So I found myself stuck in the Lima airport, and uh, I ended up being able to catch another airline, but not to the place I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Cusco. So I ended up flying to Puno instead just because it was not Lima, it's uh, That's Lake Titicaca, I guess. And from there, I said, well, why don't I stay? And so I found out you could do this, and you can kind of go stay with a local family on one of these islands. And I did, and it was just the most amazing thing I've ever done. My host's name was Aunt Anna, Anna. Uh-huh. And we, both, we, we were both speaking a second language. Spanish was a second language for both of us. Obviously, my first language is English, and hers was Quechua. And they invited me into their home. Um, I cooked a meal with them in their kitchen, which was just incredibly memorable. Uh, their kitchen was kind of a, a clay house, um, a, a small clay house or hut next to their main house. And it had one of the roofs kind of made of straw that would let the smoke go through, but not entirely through. So the upper half of the, of the room of the house was very smoky. So we kind of crouched on the floor and peeled onions and so forth and... The way they cooked was they had a little hearth, a stone hearth, and beneath it there was a slot for the wood, and above it was where you put the pan. Hmm. Uh, and we made this great quinoa soup. Uh, just just incredibly memorable. Well, a little bit different than your uh, Buffalo, New York experience. I'll say. Wow. Now, that there's a great example of good travel. You, because of um, circumstances completely out of control, had to fly somewhere else. You had to throw your itinerary out the window, basically, and just hurl yourself into the local culture, and it worked out okay. Yeah. It really did, and, and wow. I, I think I've found that in the past, too. I think that's uh, a common uh, thread in people's great travel experiences. The more you try to figure it out and get it all planned, sometimes, ironically, the less of a rich experience you might enjoy. Tell us about your time on Machu Picchu. Sure. Um, when I, I did ultimately get up to Cusco, I ended up taking a bus from Puno up to Cusco, and I didn't have plans beforehand. Um, as I said, it was a quickly up, a quickly planned trip, so... I didn't have reservations with a tour company. I just kind of walked around until I found one, and it turned out to be great. Um, it was, I think, a three or four day, uh, maybe four days, three nights was, was the trek, and carried all our own gear, um, you know, camped out at night. Um, it's a pretty standard tour. You know, you stop at pretty standard places, but nonetheless, it was just incredibly amazing. Um, you know, you're up at 14,000 feet at some points. Uh, you go through a cloud forest, you go through jungle, you, you know, it's, a, it's kind of like a low jungle or a high jungle, I'm not sure which. People keep uh, talking about their experience like it's more than just getting to a village high in the Swiss Alps. I mean, there's something spiritual or, or special about this connection with these pre-Columbian cultures or what. Did you have any feeling about that? Absolutely. Um, I, I've described it to, to some of my friends as saying I felt like I was on a pilgrimage, like I was walking in the footsteps of these ancient Incas or these ancient uh, scholars and kings who would have gone to Machu Picchu before me. And I'm Catholic, so that's the spirituality I bring with me. But I, I guess I felt enhanced by this Inca spirituality that so closely connects man to nature. Now, did you do anything to read up on that or appreciate that better, or is this just something that's a, a gut feeling as you were wandering around among all those dramatic ruins on top of the mountains? I had done some reading, and I have to give a lot of credit to the guide that was with our group um, he, he, he did a wonderful job explaining a lot of the history to us. But to me, a lot of the history, especially of indigenous cultures, has more to do with the story and the legend and the tradition 
kind of that half of the brain. Right. And he did a great job of bringing that side of things to to our group. And I guess put put that with some of my reading and some of my own history, uh, it it really built into this. Uh, kind of fantastic image and this fantastic wow. experience. Leah from Buffalo, New York, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Okay, happy travels. Okay, bye-bye. I've been talking with Kurt Kutai, and Kurt runs Wildland Adventures. To learn more about his work, see his uh, site at wildland.com. Kurt, you make me want to go to Peru. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And, if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here are some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. Lloyd Hainberry is an American missionary from Antioch, California, now living in Kiev in the Ukraine. He sent us this haiku about a scene he witnessed around Christmas time in the Swiss Alps. Gimmelwald Manger, as the king of kings in straw, you sleep divinely. Joanne Gudemond of Beloit, Wisconsin, sends us this poem about a place she's only seen from a distance. From decks of cruise ships across the azure water, Cuba, when? Someday. And Corrine Stark of Portland, Oregon, sent us a collection of haikus she wrote while in Mexico. We especially like two of them. This haiku is about what she and her husband saw in San Miguel. Walking the dusty road, two boys with the same gait as the old cowboy. And she wrote this one about the scene at Malangue San Patricio. As the waves withdraw, a loud applause can be heard from the turning rocks. Again, we'd like to receive a haiku from you about your travels, or send us a short brag about your hometown. Look for details from our 15 Seconds of Fame link. It's in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Next up, we're heading for the tropics, Fiji. It offers snorkeling over exotic reefs and trekking through tropical rainforests. It's a lush land with a distinct culture where visitors are regarded as honored guests. Our email, radio at ricksteves.com, or call us at 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Let's go to the South Pacific. It's time for Fiji. Joining us, a man who's written the classic guidebook to the South Pacific, David Stanley. David, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for calling me, Rick. Boy, every time I thumb through your book, it makes me want to head south, and I mean really south, down to the South Pacific. When we think about traveling in the South Pacific, Fiji comes to mind. Why, why is that everybody's favorite? Well, uh, I guess it's because it's, it's a big country. It's English-speaking. Well, they have their, their Fijian language, and the Indian people speak Hindi, but it's well-known because it's, it's almost midway between Hawaii and New Zealand. So most of the flights coming down, you can stop in Fiji. It's the most popular 
vacation spot in the South Pacific by far. They're, they're reaching about 400,000 visitors a year, which is, wow. you know, that is a lot for the South Pacific. The, the closest one to them is French Polynesia, which gets about 200,000, compared to places like Hawaii, which are getting, oh, yeah. you know, 7, 8 million a year. So Fiji d- doubles the visitors that Tahiti would get then. It does, it does. Now, Fiji is not just one island. Uh, what is it, 320-some islands? Uh, exactly. 100 of them are inhabited, 800,000 people live there. It's uh, more of a landmass than, than the rest of the islands in the South Pacific, it looks like. Yes, it is. And it's, it's quite a, you know, these are high islands. They're actually, the islands of Fiji, the two main islands, are high enough to catch the prevailing trade winds. And on one side is very wet and green, and on the other side is very brown and dry. Uh, and you don't have that on other islands in South Pacific? Not as much, no. Right. They're, they're not, it's just the way, also it's the way they're laid out, you know, like they stretch um, from the southwest to the northeast, and that actually just catches the southeast trade winds perfectly and causes this effect that I just mentioned. Now, are most of these islands, I mean, you, you look at a map and they're just, the whole area of the, the Pacific there is just speckled with little islands. Are most of them volcanoes that erupted from the bottom of the ocean floor and eventually... Uh, you know, cut open under the surface? Yes, that, uh, that's the origin of, of most of these islands, although you have every type of island in Fiji. Fiji's a, a very diverse place, but the main islands actually are, are like that. Um, they are volcanic. And now, what's a, are some islands actually made out of coral? Yes. Well, actually, all, almost all the islands have coral reefs around them, because even though they're volcanic islands, you'll have the reef forming around the islands, so you'll mm-hmm. have the pure white beaches that you see see in the brochures, although the the coral beaches are mostly on the outer islands, like the main island of Fiji is Viti Levu. You don't find very many white beaches on Viti Levu because it's it's a volcanic island. You have the ah, black beaches. So a white beach is a coral beach. Yes. You know, the coral is actually formed of these little coral pulps which are growing, and they, they actually form huge reefs. They stack up on top of each other like, uh, like oyster shells almost? Exactly. The fourth largest barrier reef in the world is in Fiji, the Great Sea Reef, which is on the um, northwest side of Fiji. It stretches right along the whole side of Fiji. So it, it, grow, it sort of chooses a place to grow that's away from the shore enough, but before it gets too deep, and then it just they stack up on top of each other, and eventually they uh, crack open through the surface, and you've got that reef. Yes, Is and it, the they, do, they have to be in salt water. They can't form in fresh water, so that's why at the mouths of rivers, you don't find any reef. Now, when we're thinking of South Pacific, we kind of think of Tahiti and Fiji, at least I do, and if somebody knows nothing about the South Pacific and they're going to go to one area... I mean, there's reasons, I'm sure, to go to Tahiti and there's reasons to go to Fiji. How do you choose between the two? It, it sort of depends on what you want. Like, if you're, if you're more interested in a romantic, upscale holiday, you want to have the, you know, the, the world-class allure of fine food and everything, then you should go to Tahiti, because Tahiti is the creme de la creme. Sort of the Paul Gauguin, luxurious, yes, hedonistic yes. South Pacific. Whereas Fiji has a lot more diversity and it's also much less expensive than French Polynesia. And if you want to participate in sports like scuba diving or sailing or kayaking or even golf, you, can, you should go to Fiji because they offer a vast array of these uh, participatory sports which they also have to a lesser extent in French Polynesia, but it's, it's more expensive, to be frank. Tahiti's kind of boutique South Pacific, and it's got a quarter of the people, it's got fine cuisine, and it's got luxurious beaches, but you're saying more substantial kind of culture would be Fiji. Yes. French Polynesia is a French colony. Tahiti became independent in 1970, and they have their own culture. Of course, not quite half, but just less than half the population of Fiji are East Indians who were brought there by the British to cut the sugar cane. Because what did you say? There's, they're Hindu. Did you say they're Hindu? Yes, they're Hindu, and there is a, there's a, a number of Muslims, too. But, you know, Hinduism gives a culture this sort of fragrant gentility that you don't find, I don't think, in the Muslim cultures. That's my experience in, in Indonesia. The charm of Bali compared to Java, to me, is because it's Hindu versus Muslim. Yes. You know, about 80% of the Indians in uh, Fiji are Hindus. And you're right about that. And, and actually, I've always found that the Fiji Indians are the most charming, friendly people to deal with. And I think they get that from uh, the 
Fijians, because the Fijians are also just like that. And if you go there, you can smile at anybody on the street, whether they're a Fijian or an Indian, and they and you can know they'll smile back and they'll say hello. You know, the South Pacific is is made up of so many small islands, mm-hmm. and maybe by force, people are have to be friendly because your neighbor is living, you know, right across the street, and you see them every day. But David, Fiji's got cannibals. <laughs> well, it had cannibals. Isn't that the nickname? Don't they call it the Cannibal Islands? The Cannibal Islands. The last cannibals ate uh, Reverend Baker's shoes. That was in the center of uh, Viti Levu about... 1867, this missionary went up, and they were having a tribal war up there and everything, and he should have known better to go up there, but he said, oh, well, I'm Reverend Baker, I can go up. So he was clubbed and put in the uh, underground oven and baked himself, and they also ate his shoes. He was the last guy to be eaten, that was 1867. He was the last one to be eaten. I think they actually have something about him in the Fiji Museum in <laughs> Suva, so if you want to learn more about Reverend Baker... Okay, but you you're sure go. no more uh, reverends being eaten since 1867. 1867 was the last one. That's good. Now, what about this kava ritual? That's the local uh, intoxicant, isn't it? Yes, that's performed as uh, at many of the hotels as is sort of a, a ritual. Like the, it's sort of a peacemaking, or it creates bonds between different groups of people. They crush these kava roots and strain them out and put them in a big bowl, and then they scoop out this kava drink in small half coconut shell cups. So it's like smoking the peace pipe or something. Yes, it is. It is. But you know, today it's become so prevalent that you know you can go into government offices and they'll have a kava bowl somewhere and you can you know they'll probably offer you a cup now it's just like tea <laughs> oh, it's tea is it does it give you a buzz is it like alcoholic or what not really you know i've drank a lot of kava when i was in fiji and i've never really had much effect except once when i was on a very remote island and i told the guys there i said hey this stuff has never done anything to me and i think they made it stronger that night and uh, the stars were spinning as we walked home are there any other uh, like uh, indigenous intoxicants that are part of the culture? <laughs> well, maybe beer. The Fiji bitter beer is famous, and uh, none of those betel nuts or whatever they chew. No, no, betel, the betel nut culture is further west. That's in the Solomon Islands. Uh, oh, you won't right. find that at all in mm-hmm. Fiji. I'm talking with David Stanley. He is the author of the classic guidebook to the South Pacific. It's the Moon Handbook to South Pacific. David, when did this book first come out? In 1979, the first edition came out. Last year, we brought out the eighth edition. Eighth edition, and it's a 1,000 pages, and it's just an inspiration. Congratulations on this. And I don't know if you've got any competition, really. I mean, this is really the standard book, isn't it? Yes, it's the standard. But there are other books out there. You know, I'm not going to say which ones. There's a few published in Australia, which you might have seen. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, (laughs) but, But... I have a personal interest in this book because, actually, I own the copyright of the book. Oh, you do? Uh, My publisher, Moon Handbooks, is one of the few publishers which allows their authors to still own the copyright. All the other companies have people who they just pay a fee, and they go out there one time and do their best. You know, that's a a sad thing in the travel writing business, and you've got your name in the cover, and you're part owner of that book, and you're going to make it good. My book was the second book published by Moon Handbooks. They now have well over 100 titles. Right. Just to let people in on that, uh, Bill Dalton wrote sort of the Bible to travel to Indonesia. It was the standard book to Indonesia, and then uh, you were a buddy of his, I guess, and you wrote the South Pacific book, and exactly. uh, these are sort of the, the, they go way back to hippie travel days. Yes, yes, it was. Actually, Bill wrote this, his Indonesia book, and started in 1973, okay. and I think he wrote, wrote it in the YMCA in Singapore. Now, he was so honest with his book that even though he was promoting tourism, the Indonesian government wouldn't let his book be sold in Indonesia. Uh, have you ever run into anything like that with South Pacific work? Um, actually, yes. Uh, in the Cook Islands, for, for many years, my book was not allowed because it was, it was uh, critical of some of the local tourist industry because they have some really strict rules in Cook Islands. For example, you're not allowed to pitch a tent anywhere in that country. Wow. And I was telling people, you know, about this two franc away, and, they, and I was, uh, they, I've never been personally had any problem. You know, I've never been refused entry or anything. But they actually had a, a concerned enough government where they wouldn't allow your book to be sold there? Well, you know, actually, to be honest with you, uh, Rick, the market is so small that yeah. it really isn't, doesn't work that way. But my, my book was, it got uh, furious 
negative reviews in the local uh, oh. Cook Islands news in Rarotonga. <laughs> Nothing's worse than a travel writer who tells what he really thinks, huh? Exactly. <laughs> hey, we've got Steve on the line in Oakwood Hills, Illinois. Hi, Steve. Thanks for waiting. Hi, Rick. Bula. Bula, Bula, Steve. Bula is uh, hello in, in Fiji. Ah, I've learned a word, Bula. Bula. I heard it numerous times. The people there are so dang friendly, everybody says it to you. Yes. If you want to carry it one further, you say Bula Vinaka. Yes. Because Vinaka is thank you. Thank you. I use that word a lot, too. It's a good Uh, word. Listen, we were on Blue Lagoon Cruise. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. And uh, there was only like 30 of us on the boat. Uh Uh-huh. Mostly Australians and New Zealanders. Yep. So we got to meet some new people. Had a lot of Fiji bitter beer. Yeah. And had a great time with that. One thing that happened to us, we missed our connection to Fiji and missed the boat. And we talked with Rosie's Tours Travel over there, and they hooked us up with a seaplane ride to catch up with the boat (laughs) with Turtle Airways. Yes, Turtle Airways, right. And my travel insurance paid for it, which was really great. Oh, that's pretty good. Travel insurance missed the boat, and they pay for the seaplane. Yep. Hey, hey uh, Steve, you're, you took a cruise called Blue Lagoons. Did you actually ever get to one of these quintessential Blue Lagoons? Yes. Tell us about it. Oh, the uh, coral reefs are just wonderful. Basically, we, we did a lot of uh, having breakfast, snorkeling, having tea, snorkeling, having lunch, having tea, having cocktails, having dinner, and... Uh, the crew would uh, sing and dance all night for us with the musical instruments. We just had a wonderful time. Sounds great. It was just what Then we hit the Coral Coast, and he, as he said, uh, there's a wet and dry side to it, and we experienced both. Ballpark, what'd you pay to fly from, uh, you're from Illinois, down to, down to Fiji? It was 1800 And then after that, how was the... Uh, the Blue Lagoon was for two. It was like 3000 for the full week. With all the meals included. So that's about $200 a day to be on a kind of a luxury cruise with all the works, huh? Yeah, it was great. So it was a good value. Good value. Hey, good to have you call, Steve. Well, thank you. Bye now. Bye. I'm talking with David Stanley, and David writes the Moon Handbook to the South Pacific. And David, we're talking about Fiji. And when I think about Fiji, don't we have a lot of history? Captain Cook, Mutiny on the Bounty, Captain Bly, all that sort of thing? No, no. Oh, we do have Captain Bly, but not, not Captain... Well, Captain Cook visited some of the outer islands around Fiji, yes. Uh-huh. And, and actually, Captain Bly, when he was, after he was put off, his, off the bounty in Tonga, he had to row all the way over to Timor to get back to Europe. And he actually passed right through the center of the Fiji group between the two main islands. And that water is still called Bly water today. Huh. Yeah, and, and he was actually chased by cannibals. And, uh, That'll I get think you rowing faster. They, yes, the Englishmen started rowing quite faster, and they managed <laughs> to escape. <laughs> what about the Robinson Crusoe kind of image and Tom Hanks' castaway and all this kind of thing? Ah, yes, yes. That, but these things are sort of just stories. You know, Fiji doesn't have the literary history that French Polynesia has. You know, I've looked for real good literary books, you know, like... Uh, Mark Twain wrote a little bit about it, but nothing really that grabs you. So the Robinson Crusoe, Tom Hanks castaway kind of stuff is more French Polynesia? It's more French Polynesia. There you've got really the whole story of the, the, the bounty. The, the, right. um, a lot of things happen in French Polynesia. Fiji is more... Fiji, the people are very exuberant and friendly, and you can approach any Fijian. It's just like Steve said. They'll, they'll just say, Bula, and they'll big smile on their face and they'll do anything they can to help you out. It just sounds like it's a, a substantial culture, like a real, not just some uh, tiny little islands, but a, a real culture. They've it, got it is. It's a very strong culture. In fact, it's a little bit too strong, you know, because they do, they do have some political problems which um, come out of the culture and also out of the religion and out of the ethnic mix and, and the different classes, the land-owning classes, like... Um, 83% of the land in Fiji is still owned by the indigenous clans. Wow, that's impressive. 83%. So what kind of political tension is there then? Well, there's, you see, there is a bit of political tension because the, um, the Fijian chiefs have a position in Fiji. They're very, they still have a lot of influence and power and they control most of the land and they are 
trying to preserve this, and they're backed up by the Methodist Church. It's a very conservative hmm. set you have on one side. And then on the other side, you have the Labour Party, which is more modern and progressive. They want to bring in you know, more modern things. And so there's this back and forth. And you have had a couple of military coups in Fiji. And the first one was in 1987. And then in the year 2000, there was actually another coup, which was not caused by the military. It was caused by these um, uh, conservative groups who were just trying to overthrow the labor government, and they did overthrow it. However, I should say that none of this affected tourists in any way. There was never any tourist inconvenience or bothered, even during the height of the coup. Right now, it's all calmed down. It's perfectly calm. They probably recognize the value of tourism for their economy, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Well, billions were lost because of these things, Rick. It was a disaster. Isn't it the number one employer there? Yes, it's the number one industry. It passed um, sugar about a decade ago. Wow. Now, the coins, I mean, we're talking about all the uh, military and the, and the local landowners, and all that, but the coins have Queen Elizabeth on them. What's the deal? Yes, that's interesting. You know, uh, after the first coup in 1987, Fiji was actually kicked out of the British Commonwealth. But they kept Queen Elizabeth on their dollar bills, and they kept the Union Jack in the upper corner of their flag. And eventually, after democracy was reestablished and a new constitution was actually put in effect, they were allowed back into the British Commonwealth. Right now, they're back in. So they just kept those symbols on their money and their flag and everything, and eventually they're back in as if nothing happened. And they're happy, part of the British Commonwealth once more. Yes, it's a very complex thing. I have quite a bit of information about this in my book. Yeah, I noticed it's the biggest chapter in the whole book is on Fiji. There's lots to cover. Oh, there is. There's a lot to cover. Well, there's so much to do in Fiji, so many different choices of places to go. Most of the people stay in an island group called the Mamanutha Group, which is right off the main airport, Nandi. And there's a lot of small coral islands with resorts, which people go to for a lot of Australians and New Zealanders come up to Fiji for holidays. Boy, there is so much to know and to be uh, turned on to about Fiji. It just sounds very exciting. It is. We've been talking with David Stanley, the author to the Moon Handbook to the South Pacific. David's website is southpacific.org. Bula Vinaka. What does Bula Vinaka mean? That means thank you very much and, and uh, hello. Bula Vinaka. Aloha. <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.